0: Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this new day that you have given to us. Like the psalmist, we recognize that this is the day that you have made, and so we will rejoice and be glad in it. God, we're grateful that not only have you given us another day to rejoice in, but you've given us a wonderful church family to gather together with, to worship you, to grow in our understanding of all that you've called us to be as your children. And Lord, this morning, we pray that you would use this passage to continue to lead us and guide us in the way that we should go. That you would use this passage to continue to stir our affections for you. That Lord, you would use this passage to further the great work that you're doing in each of our lives, which is conforming us into the very image of your own son. So Father, please bless our time now in your holy word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The title of today's message is Gospel Freedom. Gospel Freedom, the first 15 verses here in Galatians chapter 5. A number of years ago, there was a worship song by all sons and daughters with a line that says this, it is for freedom that I am set free. And I remember the first time I heard that song, I was thinking to myself, well, that sounds really good, but how biblical is that exactly? And I thought maybe the, the, the worship team had kind of taken a little bit of creative liberty and written that line. You can imagine my embarrassment as a pastor the next time I got around to Galatians chapter 5, because that's literally a direct quote from verse 1. In my defense, I grew up reading the New King James Version, which doesn't phrase it this way, but that's neither here nor there. The truth still stands. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I like that line in that song before rereading Galatians 5, but I felt a lot better about liking it afterward. More than being a cool verse though, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is a profound and pivotal verse. In the New Testament and in the book of Galatians, one commentator pointed out that that one verse is basically a summary of chapters 3 and 4, and in some senses, it's a summary of the entire letter to the churches of Galatia. The point of this book is that those who are in Christ through faith alone are free, and those who are not are enslaved. We're now, as we've entered chapter 5, into the third major division in the book of Galatians. The Bible Project helpfully summarizes the book of Galatians like this. They say the gospel of the crucified Messiah creates a new multi-ethnic family that is transformed by the Spirit. And the way that they break that down is chapters 1 and 2 present this gospel of the crucified Messiah. Chapters 3 and 4 declare that This gospel creates a new multi-ethnic family. And finally, chapters 5 and 6 show how that new family is transformed by God's Holy Spirit. And what does this new family that's transformed by the Holy Spirit of God look like? Well, at its most foundational level, it is a community that is living in freedom in the realm of the Spirit. And it's to this freedom that Paul now turns his attention in the beginning of chapter 5. Verse one, let's look at it again. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I mean, think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the reason that Jesus set us free is so that you and I could actually live freely, that we could actually live in freedom. In other words, Jesus did not go to Calvary's cross and die there for our sins so that he could hand us over to a system of law. If that were the case, Jesus would just be delivering us from one slave master to enslave us to another. No, rather, Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he delivered us into freedom. Those who have put our faith in him have been set free so that we might live free. And we're going to get into exactly what that freedom means and looks like down in verse 13. But what we need to notice here in verse 1 is that this freedom that we're going to talk about can, in fact, be forfeited. That's why he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit, check out the word, again to a yoke of slavery. So it can be forfeited. Now, at the founding of this nation, John Adams, the man who's largely credited with Um, For the formation of our constitution was asked when he was leaving the Constitutional Convention, Mr. Adams, what have you given us? To which Mr. Adams famously replied, a republic if you can keep it. And the idea there behind what John Adams was saying is that this fragile new experiment that is America, this idea of self-rule, that preserves our freedoms, is a fragile thing. And every generation is going to have to passionately defend that fragile democracy, or rather republic, in order for it to survive. If we were to ask the Apostle Paul this morning, Paul, what has Christ given us? He'd likely respond to us, freedom, if you can keep it. For every person who accepts the gospel of God's grace, there are two main temptations that, fret, uh, that threaten, excuse me, the freedom that is to be had in Christ. The first temptation causes a person to lose their freedom, whereas the second temptation causes a person to abuse their freedom. And Paul is going to deal with both of these temptations in this passage. So this first temptation is, again, the temptation to lose your freedom to, as Paul puts it in verse 1, to submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's losing your freedom, and it's in verses 2 through 12. Look at verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, for you have fallen away from grace. If you're visiting us here this morning, or if you're somebody who's unfamiliar with the Bible, what we just read must seem bizarre to you. Like, why are we talking about circumcision? And what might the application from today's message be exactly? Well, let me let you know that this letter was written to a group of Christians who were converted to Christianity from paganism. And after some time, their churches were infiltrated by false teachers who were Jews from the city of Jerusalem. And these false teachers told these young Christians that in order to be fully accepted before God, and in order to truly belong to God's family, yes, they needed to believe in Jesus, but they also needed to become Jewish. After all, the Messiah himself was Jewish. After all, God's chosen people were the Jews. So if you really want to belong to God, if you want to be fully accepted, yes, believe in Jesus, but you also must become Jewish. And male circumcision is the first step toward that life. It's the starting point of life under the law of Moses. So essentially, these false teachers in Galatia were saying to these young Christians, it's Jesus plus The law. So Paul's issue here in these verses is not with circumcision per se. His issue is people looking to circumcision and and really the whole law, people looking to that as the basis for which they will be accepted before God. That is the problem. These people are tempted to look to the law of Moses as the basis for why God will accept them into his family. Paul makes it clear that this is what they're thinking. Look at verse 4 again. He talks about those who are tempted to embrace the law, and he says, you who would be justified by the law. So it's clear that these people are looking to the law and their obedience to it to experience justification before God. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. It means that God looks at a person's life and says, you are actually a righteous person and therefore you are allowed to enter in to heaven. And these people were looking to the law. They were tempted to look to the law for that righteousness. And so Paul warns those who who are being tempted in this way. He says, look, if you go that way, if you start looking to the law now as the basis for God's acceptance of you, as the basis of your own righteousness, he says that you are now obligated to keep the whole law in verse 3. What a crushing requirement. If that's the way I'm going to approach God, I'm going to earn it, I'm going to figure it out, I'm going to obey the law, then you are obligated to obey all of it. You need a perfect track record. This brings us back to, To Galatians 3.10, you'll remember this verse. He said, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So Paul there was quoting the Old Testament, which says, "Look, If if you don't do all of the law, then you're cursed. And Paul makes the conclusion there that everybody therefore is cursed because nobody can perfectly obey God's law. And so the key issue here for Paul is this, on what basis are we made right with God? Of course, one answer is the answer that they're tempted toward. It's the answer that says, well, I'll follow all the rules. I'll be good enough. I'll live rightly. And there are millions of people who are thinking that that's how they're going to be accepted before God. They're comparing their life to somebody else's. And well, as long as I do better than them, God's going to accept me. And I'm going to generally do the right things. This is one approach to how people think they can be made right with God. But again, Paul says, if you choose that route, if that's your way that you're going to go for it, you're obligated to keep the entire law. Now, notice that if you go this route, if this is your path, really what you are doing is you're choosing a path of self-salvation, Right, You're looking to your own obedience to the law, to your own track record, to your own, might I say, righteousness to save you. You're earning it. And because that's the case, Paul would say, look, if you go that way, where you're trying to make yourself your savior, and it's about earning your spot in heaven, he says, then you are severed from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. Because now it's not about grace. It's not about receiving a gift from God that you didn't earn. It's about saying, I'm going to earn my place in God's kingdom through my effort. So again, if you go that way, Paul says, Christ is no advantage to you. You're trying to save yourself. You're severed from Christ. You're going a totally different way. And so, it's a terrible way to go. The other option, the other way we could go and trying to figure out how can we be made right with God, is to say this. Well, I'm not righteous. So I am going to look for a righteousness that is outside of myself. And there is a righteousness outside of you that is available to you, and it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The truly righteous one who is willing to give you himself and his righteousness, and therefore make you a righteous person. So we all have a choice to make. Am I going to be a person who makes it my life mission to earn this? I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to prove to God that I deserve a spot in heaven. Or are you going to be a person who says, I am going to receive this as God's free gift to me, even though I don't deserve it. There's no middle ground here. So the great danger for anyone who accepts the gospel of God's grace is to lose the freedom to be had in Christ by looking to something other than Christ to save you. For the Galatians, it was the law. Now for church folks like most of us, you might be sitting there going, why would anybody ever do that? Like, what would be the appeal? Why would somebody do that? Well, this happens to the person who thinks to themselves, when they, when they hear the gospel of grace, they think this to themselves, This is too good to be true. It can't be that easy. This is too good to be true. It can't be that easy. Now, most people probably don't actually say that verbally, but they feel that at the level of their heart. And the reason for that is because all human beings, listen, are allergic to the gospel. We're allergic to it. And the reason for that is because it is completely counterintuitive. It's not the way your human experience has ever worked out. The love you've received from other people has always at some level felt conditional. Yes, they love me. Yes, they love me. But I'm sure there is a limit to that. I'm sure there's a point where I can make that person really, really despise me. The forgiveness of other people in your life has always been limited Yes, there are certain people you could keep going, keep going, keep going, but there feels like there's a breaking point. The way that the world works around you is if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You get what you deserve. You have to work for it. You have to earn it. That's the way that we're all hardwired. So here comes the message of the gospel of God's grace, which says you can't earn it. I've done it all for you. You receive it freely as a gift. And we say, oh, I'm allergic to that. I, I I can't receive that. That can't possibly be true. And so there's this built-in mechanism in the human heart that wants to reject the gospel of grace, that wants to say, okay, Jesus sounds awesome, but I'm sure I've got to do something. Just tell me what it is. I'd gladly do it. What's the little thing that I should add? And so sometimes people who have initially heard the gospel of God's grace, this free gift that God gives you to save you, and they've, they've, they've received that at one level and thought, that sounds great they suddenly find themselves being drugged away from that message in different ways. One way is the way the Galatians were being drugged away. Somebody comes along in their spiritual journey, so to speak, and starts telling them, hey, hey, Jesus is great. That's wonderful. But there's some things that your church probably left out. In order to be saved, it's Jesus plus baptism, for example. In order to be saved, it's Jesus plus baptism confirmation or it's Jesus plus this particular denomination that you have to join or even worse this particular cult that you need to join so all of a sudden it's Jesus plus some other thing or it's Jesus plus this is really popular this particular moral code So to be a Christian, to really belong, to be a part of God's family, yes, we put our faith in Jesus, but we certainly have to obey these things or God is not accepting us. And those things can vary. And for some people, it's things like Jesus and saying no to these kinds of movies. And of course, yes to homeschool and no to tobacco and alcohol. And yes, of course, to the King James version of the Bible and no others. No to spaghetti straps and yes to bonnets. Okay, that's probably not very relevant, but... But you get the point. It's about some particular moral code that Apostles Church imposes. And if you really want to belong, that's what it's going to be about. And if you're not doing those things, if you break the rules a little bit, you don't belong. And clearly you're not a Christian. And just like that, a person who at first accepted the idea of a gospel of God's grace has now found himself adding something to it. And Paul says, look, if that's what happens... You're on your own. You're severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. The other way this creeps up and the much more common way to be frank with you is that many people accept the gospel of God's grace at the level of their head, but they never quite accept it at the level of their heart. So they can believe at one level that they are free, but find that the way that they actually live is enslaved and in bondage. Maybe you can relate to this. Many of us feel more acceptable to God and more loved by God when we're behaving right, when we're doing good, than when we blow it. When we've read our Bible every day of the week and we've kept our temper and we've not looked at porn that week, then we are right with God. But if our Bible's getting dusty, if we blew up on our kids or our spouse, or we click that link that we swore we would never click again, then we can't come to God until We sort of clean ourselves up and get our act together. It's almost like we have to do some penance before we're actually acceptable and presentable before God. And so, again, at one level, we might think the gospel of God's grace is true, but at the practical level that we're living at, we're not actually living consistently with that. And we find ourselves stuck on a performance treadmill every single day, every single week, having to get back up and say, okay, I've got I've to prove myself. I've got to g- get things cleaned up. I've got to do things right. Because if I don't, then God will not accept me. This is a very deep-seated seduction and temptation in the human heart. And it plays itself out in two ways. For the genuine believer who wrestles with this, which all of us do to one degree or another, for the genuine believer who again, struggles to see themselves consistently, whether you're obeying or not, as fully accepted and perfectly loved by God. The way this plays out is that in the power of the Holy Spirit, even though you falter, you continue to stand firm. And throughout your Christian life, that great chasm between what I believe and what I feel begins to close. And you start living more and more consistently in this reality that regardless of what I do, I am fully and truly accepted by God because of what Christ has done. The way that this plays out for the false believer, the person who, again, at one level accepted the gospel of God's grace, but they actually weren't saved, is like this. This person fails to stand firm, and instead they keep their eyes on themselves and their own performance to the point that they become so discouraged by their failures that they throw in the towel. And they conclude, clearly God doesn't love me. Obviously, I don't belong to the family of God. I can't seem to get it together. And notice that all of that is them looking on themselves and they've lost sight of the gospel of grace and they fall away. And it's the very thing that Paul is so concerned about with some of these folks in Galatia. So the million dollar question is, in what or in whom are you trusting to be in right standing with God? That's the million dollar question. Is it yourself? Is it your own works? Is it something that you've done in your life? Or are you truly resting in a righteousness that comes to you because of Christ and is received by you by faith? Nothing else by faith. Christians are looking outside of themselves to the righteousness of Christ. Look at verse five. Paul says in verse five, for through the spirit, you can underline this, by faith, we ourselves, so Paul's including himself, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Translation, Paul is saying, look, because I've put my faith in Jesus and am now filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is empowering me to wait with eagerness for that future day on the great day, on judgment day, when I am declared righteous by God in the heavenly courtroom. This is, this is where true Christians are at. That again, you all of your hopes all of your hopes about being right with God, about having a place in heaven are located in Jesus Christ and your faith in him. It is not about anything else. That's why in verse six, Paul could write this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul says, whether you're circumcised or you're not, irrelevant. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, irrelevant. All of the external stuff does not matter. Let's bring this up to date. Whether you've lived a moral life or an immoral life, no bearing on how you get to God. Whether you have a religious background or a secular background. Whether you went to a Christian school and you were the star student, or you went to a public school and you were a pothead who dropped out. Whether you are christened at birth or you're the product of a one-night stand, whether you're politically conservative or politically liberal, none of that has any bearing on your standing with God. It counts for how much according to Galatians 4, 6. Everybody do the universal sign for zero. Paul is saying, some of you are really bad listeners. See, you can't obey the law. That's like perfect proof right there. Paul says all of these things, these external things count for this much. None of that will secure your righteousness before God. The only thing he says that matters in this ultimate sense, of course, other things do matter to our lives, but the only thing that matters in this ultimate sense, you are standing with God, he says, is faith. And this is not some pie in the sky, wishful thinking kind of faith. This is a genuine faith that produces the fruit that he says is love, which we're going to talk about in two weeks is the fruit of the spirit. That's all that matters is putting your faith in the crucified and risen Messiah and then being indwelt by the spirit who produces this fruit of faith. Okay, let's get moving. I I promise this won't be a longer sermon. I just spent most of the time on the front end here because this is too important. In verses 7 and 12, I won't reread them at this point. They remind us where this temptation, this first temptation, again, this temptation to lose your freedom, where was this coming from? Paul says the one who is advocating for them to turn to the law is not the God who had called them into salvation. Paul's like, look, this idea that you need to obey the law, that you need to become Jewish to be accepted by God, that's not God's idea. That's not where you're getting this from. He says, this was coming through these false teachers. And he says, these teachers are going to bear judgment for their deception and the destruction that they were spreading in the church. He moves himself into the kitchen and uses a cooking metaphor. He says, look, just as a little leaven spreads throughout the entire lump of flour, so the false teaching left unaddressed will spread throughout the entire congregation and corrupt their entire faith. But Paul has faith in God. Paul is confident that these believers are truly indwelt by the Spirit and so they're going to come to their senses and he's confident that they will reject the false teachers and instead hold Paul's position, a position of no circumcision necessary. In fact, it's the position that has produced the very persecution that he's faced at the hands of the Jews. Now, just in case anyone was getting drowsy in the churches of Galatia, because you got to remember When this letter was first written, it would have got to these churches and somebody would have stood up and just read the entire letter to the church body. Galatians would have probably taken 40 minutes or so. So in case anybody was dozing off a little bit, Paul throws verse 12 in here, which is quite a shocker when you really hear it. In verse 12, we see this graphic play on words. Paul says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you, the false teachers, would emasculate themselves. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, false teachers, if you're so dedicated to cutting the flesh, right? Circumcision, then why don't you just go all the way with it? Okay, emasculate means to cut off the male organs. And a collective grimace came across the congregation. Some of you were like looking at the spine of this book going, Am I, is this the right book here at church today? You can tell that Paul did not have warm, fuzzy feelings for these false teachers. He, he knew what was at stake here, that they were threatening the very salvation and the freedom that was to be had in Christ. And so he has very harsh words for them. Okay, verses 13 to 15 bring us to the second temptation. And it's the temptation to abuse your freedom. Remember, temptation one is to hear the gospel and to say to yourself, this is too good to be true. It can't be that easy and then go and try to add something to what Christ has done. Temptation, two is to hear the gospel of grace and say, this is too good to be true, I can do whatever I want. If it's true that I'm saved independent of how I've lived, if my my deeds and my works have no bearing on my standing before God, then I can just do whatever I want. Look at verses 13 through 15. Paul says, For you are called to freedom, brother. So he doesn't dispute that. He says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So for the person thinking that, this is is great news. I can just do whatever I want. Paul would say, not so fast. You're drawing the wrong conclusion. You're misunderstanding freedom. See, for most people, we think of freedom as unrestricted, unlimited ability to do anything and everything I want. You can't tell me no. You can't push back. I can do anything I want. That's how we conceive of freedom. But is that really freedom? Doing anything that you want? There are many things that you can choose to do with your freedom that would actually produce slavery and bondage in your life. I mean, ask anybody who's ever had a serious addiction to drugs or alcohol or pornography or gambling or, or ask somebody who's lived with a person who has had a serious addiction to any of those things. Yes, that person freely chose to go and do those things, but that person is not living in any sense freely. They are in bondage. They are enslaved to something that is now ruling their life and destroying their life. Whatever freedom they think they have is an illusion. Family, this is so important. Listen, biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. It's doing what you were created to do. Let me say this again. Biblical freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. It's doing what you were created to do. You and I were not made to live selfishly. We were not made to live with our eyes only focused inward, trying to please our own flesh, only looking out for number one. This is how things had gotten in Galatia. Look in verse 15, they're biting, they're devouring one another. No, 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 you and I were made to love, right? What are the great commandments that all of the law depend on? Jesus said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what you were created for, to love Christ has set us free from a small life that is dominated by our flesh, where it's all about me, it's myopic. And Jesus has now delivered us into a generous life, abounding in the love of God and overflowing in love for our neighbors. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says it this way, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Family, this is is what we're called to. A a life that is others-centric, a life that is selfless, a life that is sacrificial, a life that is, somebody help me here, maybe Christ-like. Right? This is what you were created for. Christ is the perfect picture, the full picture of humanity. This is what we're supposed to be at our finest called to and created for a life of love. And notice in a surprising move, Paul now says in verse 14, that the very law that we aren't obligated to keep to secure God's love is being fulfilled in us now that we have God's love. This is insane. This is huge. He's been arguing, you're not obligated to keep the law to make God happy. You're not obligated to keep the law to earn your place in heaven. You get there by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But now he says that for those of us who do it that way, put faith in Jesus Christ, he says that we are now through love, fulfilling the very law itself, the law to love our neighbor as ourself. The spirit of the law of Moses was to help people love God and love neighbor. But when you use the law to try to earn your salvation, you will never be any good at keeping the law. Now, some of you are going, I don't know if that's true. Well, you might be good at keeping the law externally. The Pharisees were great at this. But as Jesus said, you'll neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. What do I mean by that? You'll be a person who is doing the law for your own selfish interests, for your own sake. Maybe to make yourself look good in front of other people maybe to soothe your own conscience and the guilt that you're struggling with on the inside. But either way, you will be doing the law. If it's about earning your place before God, you're doing it for yourself. But when you are secure in your salvation because you've received it by faith as God's gift to you, you'll be a person who does the law for the sake of love. You have been the recipient of God's unconditional love. It's being poured out into your heart. And now you'll find that it's bubbling up within you and overflowing in love for God and love for neighbor. And all of a sudden, you'll be doing the law, again, for the God who loves you unconditionally and for your neighbor who is just as flawed and broken rather, and helpless as you are outside of Christ this family is the key to this text and one of the major keys to the Christian life. This is the key to walking in the freedom that Christ has purchased for you. It's grasping the gospel of God's grace and experiencing the love of God at such a level that again, it causes you to respond in love toward God and neighbor. And so we end here today. Have you grasped God's love for you? Have you grasped the gospel of God's grace? Do you sense this morning, even now as you've been sitting here, that you're beginning to trust in Christ alone for your salvation rather than your own effort? It could be that God in his unimaginable love is opening your heart to his grace even now. And to you, I'd echo the words of Hebrews chapter 3. Friend, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we are once again undone in your presence as we consider the good news of the gospel. This idea, this fact, this reality, that we are made righteous before a holy and perfect and righteous God, completely independent of our own deeds. No matter how good we think we've been, no matter how evil we know we've been, makes no difference because none of us can earn it. But that's okay, we don't have to earn it. You love us enough that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, the Messiah, to live a righteous life on our behalf, to die on the cross in our place so that your justice could be satisfied and so that mercy could flow out to all who would believe and trust in this crucified and risen Messiah. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be a people who are growing in our security in that message. That Lord, We would be a people who regardless of our own daily performance are drawn back to a place of fixing our eyes on Jesus and the righteousness that we have in him and then allowing our gratitude and our love to continue changing us and transforming us into the people we've been called to be. Lord, work these things deep into our hearts today. And Father, we pray for any who have joined us today, any neighbors or friends who have come that have never put their faith in Christ alone for salvation. Oh Lord, would you change that even today? Would you grant to them faith? Holy Spirit, would you give them this beautiful gift of faith today to trust in Christ? And would you invade their hearts and their lives and begin the great work of transforming them into the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? We ask this for your glory, Lord, and for the good of all of us here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Family, can we stand to our feet and close with a wonderful song, Cornerstone?